the reality of God's providing us with the righteousness that he demands, that is the gospel. Listen, don't be ashamed of the gospel because it promises you the gift of God's righteousness. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. I'm Bill Wright, and Tom is continuing his current series in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, titled, The Keynote of Romans. It was this passage in which the 16th century reformer Martin Luther found liberty for his soul, and it was through his understanding of this passage that the Protestant Reformation began. Luther wrote, quoting, As I had formerly hated the expression, the righteousness of God, I now began to regard it as my dearest and most comforting word, so that this expression of Paul's became to me, in very truth, a gate to paradise, unquote. Well, friend, as you'll be reminded today, the gospel comes not to those who work for it, not to those who merit it, but rather simply to those who by faith believe. Friend, let's open our Bibles now to join our teacher with today's message on the Word Unleashed. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. It was this text that forever altered the life of a young monk named Martin Luther. And these two verses through him sparked a spiritual revolution. Now, when Martin Luther began university, it was in the field that his father wanted him to pursue, and that was law. Luther excelled as a student. He gave great promise of becoming successful in his field. But at the same time that he was succeeding and excelling in his studies, he was deeply troubled in his soul. From boyhood, Luther was deeply troubled by the thought that one day he would die and he, a guilty sinner, would stand before God, his creator. There were events in his life, in his life that only added to that consternation and trouble. One of those happened during his college days. Two of his closest friends died, and that only accentuated the fact that he too one day would die and stand before God, his maker. But really the life-changing experience for Martin Luther came in the summer of 1505. Luther was caught in a violent thunderstorm. He was almost struck by lightning, and the bolt was so close to him that it actually knocked him off of his horse. And as he had been trained as a Catholic to do in that moment of terror, he cried out to his patron saint, St. Anne, and he said, St. Anne, if you will save me from death, then I'll become a monk. A couple of months later, in August of that summer, to his father's dismay, he entered the monastery of Augustinian hermits and became a monk. Luther was, in fact, as he had been as a university student, also as a monk, exemplary. He fasted and prayed constantly. He devoted himself to the menial task to which he was assigned But above everything else, Luther spent hours and hours in confession each day. 
This became a great frustration both to his superiors and to his fellow monks. I mean, after all, how much trouble can you really get into in a monastery? Well, as you know, a great deal. But he was trying desperately to deal with the guilt of his sin. And this is how he'd been taught to do so. And so he would, for example, spend hours confessing his secret craving for his fellow monk's food. Finally, his superiors ordered him to stop until he had something worthy of confessing. What marked these days for Luther was that through all of the spiritual exercises he went through as a monk, he found no peace for his soul. He writes of that period of his life, I had no love for that holy and just God who punishes sinners. I was filled with secret anger against him. In God's providence, his spiritual superior at the monastery was a wise man named John Stalpitz. I really believe that John Stalpitz understood the true gospel and that we'll meet this man in heaven. Here's what Stalpitz told Luther, as Luther later recounts it. Stalpitz said, More than a thousand times I have sworn to our holy God to live piously, and I have never kept my vows. Now I swear no longer, for I know that I cannot keep my solemn promises. If God will not be merciful toward me for the love of Christ and grant me a happy departure when I must leave this world, I shall never, with the aid of all of my vows and all of my good works, stand before him. I must perish. Stalpitz went on to say this to Luther. Look at the wounds of Jesus Christ to the blood that he has shed for you. It is there that the grace of God will appear to you. Instead of torturing yourself on account of your sins, throw yourself in the Redeemer's arms. Trust in him, in the righteousness of his life, and in the atonement of his death. That's excellent gospel advice. He told Luther, you need to begin to study the Scripture. And it was at this juncture in Luther's life that he began to do just that. He admits that prior to the age of about 21 or 22, he'd never even known there was a Bible, never seen one, even though he was a monk. But it was at this age, under the urgings of Stalpitz, that Luther began to examine the Scripture when he first began to study the Bible. And as you know, he eventually became a professor of theology. And the time came when he was going to give a series of lectures on Paul's letter to the Romans. And of course, early on in that study, he came as we have to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. I want to read to you an extended quote of Luther's struggle with these verses because it goes to the crux of our study today. Listen carefully. Luther wrote, I labored diligently and anxiously as to how to understand Paul's word in Romans 1.17, where he says that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. As often as I read that declaration, I wished always that God had not made the gospel known, because this fuller revelation of the righteousness of God seemed to make me utterly hopeless and helpless. 
For I hated that word, righteousness of God, which according to the use and custom of all the teachers, I had been taught to understand philosophically regarding the formal or active righteousness, as they called it, with which God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, I was angry with God and said, If indeed it's not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost to original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of God without having God add pain to pain by the gospel threatening us with his righteous wrath. That's how he misunderstood. Now listen to what he says. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place. In other words, he's studying desperately to know what Paul meant most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Luther later wrote, As I had formerly hated the expression, the righteousness of God, I now began to regard it as my dearest and most comforting word, so that this expression of Paul's became to me in very truth a gate to paradise. It was this text in which Martin Luther found liberty for his soul. And it was through his understanding of this text that the Protestant Reformation began. Let's read it together. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written but the righteous man shall live by faith. Now, you'll notice that verse 16 introduces us to the theme of this letter, the gospel, and Paul tells us there are certain things about the gospel. But then in verse 17, Paul gives us a brief exposition of the content of the gospel. The gospel is simply the message about the righteousness of God. That is, the righteousness that comes from God and that he gives to sinners solely by grace based on the life and death of Jesus Christ and is received by faith alone. These two verses then establish the theme or the the thesis of the entire letter. 
Now, we noted last week that Paul begins this brief statement of his thesis with a surprising negative. Notice verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. We noted that in the historical context of the first century, shame was not merely a subjective feeling. It was an objective loss of status. To shame someone was to publicly humiliate them. And Paul says he was not ashamed of the gospel. He's admitting that the message he preached was considered to be a shameful message, foolishness. And he was marked as a fool and as a man worthy of public shame, without honor, deserving of ill respect. But in spite of all of that, Paul says he was not ashamed. Now, what rationale did Paul give for ignoring the public shame that came with his message? Well, in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul explains why he felt no shame. And as he explains his own lack of shame, he provides us with the reasons that we should never be ashamed of the gospel. Last Sunday, we looked at the first two reasons that Paul was not and that we should not be ashamed of the gospel. First of all, because it is God's power. The gospel is God's power. The Holy Spirit is in the gospel as it's presented, and he's in it powerfully to affect the results he desires. Sometimes, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, that's to produce life. And sometimes the gospel seals a person's doom because they will not respond to it. But regardless, it is the power of God. Every time you present the gospel, it is God's power at work. Secondly, we shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel because it produces salvation. Notice what Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation unto spiritual rescue. It's amazing, but it is this foolish message, as Paul calls it, that God has decided to use to accomplish, to produce spiritual rescue in the lives of people. When you share the gospel, God may very well be in that message calling sinners to himself so that they respond and experience spiritual rescue from their sins. We looked at what we're saved from last time, from God's wrath, from moral pollution, from eternal death, and so forth. And it is the gospel message that God uses to produce salvation. This is why we share the gospel, because it's in that message that God works to accomplish rescue. Now, today we come to the third reason that Paul was not and that we should not be ashamed of the gospel. A third reason, because the gospel requires no human work or merit. The gospel requires no human work or merit. Again, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel produces spiritual rescue for everyone who believes. Now, Paul is making a crucial point here. 
Paul everywhere contrasts faith and believing on the one hand with all human work and merit on the other hand. And so he's saying the gospel comes not to those who work, not to those who merit it, but rather simply to those who believe. Let me show you an example of this contrast. Turn over to chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 1. As Paul begins to show that the, the message of the gospel, justification by faith that he's preaching, has its roots in the Old Testament, he chooses Abraham. Verse 1, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about. If it was through his own effort that he achieved a right standing before God, then he can boast. And, and Paul recoils from that, and he said, that, no, no, that can't be, not before God. That can never happen. So this can't be true. Verse 3, for what does the Scripture say? And he quotes here from Genesis 15, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now watch the contrast in verses 4 and 5. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. Tomorrow, you go to work. You work eight hours, and your employer keeps track of the number of hours that you've worked, and at some point, you get paid for those hours. Paul says, the money that you get from your work is not coming to you from your employer as grace. Rather, you deserve it. You worked for it. You earned it. So on the one side then, there is human work. And where there is human work, where there is human effort, you deserve what you get. Now look at the contrast in verse 5. But to the one who does not work but believes in him. You see the contrast? On the one side, there is human effort, and you get what you deserve. You've earned it. On the other side is the absence of human effort, and that is believing. So understand then that faith is the absence of all human effort and work. It is not a human work. It does not merit anything with God. It does not achieve anything with God. By the way, Paul makes this point in a number of other places. Look at the rest of verse 5. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So you see the contrast. Another passage where Paul makes this contrast is in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Note Galatians 2.16. Paul goes out of his way to say the same, th same thing three different ways to make his point. Galatians 2.16. Knowing that a man is not justified, is not declared right with God by the works of the law, by keeping God's law, by his own efforts to obey God, but through faith in Jesus Christ. There's the first time. Not works, but faith. Faith's the opposite of working. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. There's the second time. Same point. The contrast is between human effort, human merit, and faith. 
And just in case you didn't get it, he repeats it a third time. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Paul wants, to, wants us to understand when he says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, that the gospel is for everyone who believes, he means to say that the gospel comes to us without work, without human effort, without human merit. Now go back to Romans chapter 1. You'll notice in verse 16 the word believes. In the New Testament, that verb believe and, or believe and the Greek noun faith, they're one and the same, each of those, the noun form and the verb form, occur about 240 times each, four times in these two verses alone. Now, one other grammatical point to make here in verse 16, again, looking at the word believes, in the Greek text, the word believes is in the present tense as it normally is, by the way, when the word believing occurs. It literally could be translated this way, to the ones or the one who is believing. Paul's making an important point here, and that is that faith is not a one-time event, but real, true Christian faith, saving faith, is a constant reality. You know, sometimes you'll hear people say, well, you know, I... I made a profession of faith in the past, and, you know, I just have lived like I wanted since. Listen, that's not saving faith. Saving faith marks someone who not only believed at a point in the past, but that began a life of believing, a life of faith. It is a constant reality. Now, what exactly does it mean to believe? What is faith? Well, as we work our way through the book of Romans, we're going to explain a lot about this, examine it in detail as Paul does. But let me just give you an intro just so you have an overarching understanding of what faith is. The ways that the New Testament uses the word faith and the word believe, specifically in the Greek constructions, uncover three elements or three components of saving faith. Now, we can break them apart in order to examine them, but true saving faith can't be broken apart. It comes as a package. Nevertheless, we can see these elements, three elements of saving faith. If you're a Christian, you have exhibited all three of these elements. Number one is knowledge. There is a knowledge component to faith. This is the foundation of true faith. You cannot believe what you don't know. Turn to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, and notice verse 8. Paul says, let me tell you about the message of faith which I'm preaching. And here's the message, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and here's our word, and believe in your heart that, okay, there's knowledge that you have to have to exercise faith. You must believe in your heart this, that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Now, the resurrection here is shorthand for what's true about Christ and what he accomplished in his life and death. It's not just the resurrection you have to believe. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you remember Paul says, let me tell you the gospel I preached. It's that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, that is that he really died because the wages of sin is what? Death. So he was buried, he really died in our place, 
and he was raised on the third day. God raised him to show that he'd accepted his sacrifice. And he appeared to many, many witnesses over those 40 days. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part three of his current series, The Keynote of Romans. Tom will take Tom will bring you part four on our next broadcast as he once again takes us to God's Word. Do join us then. But before we leave you today, here again is Tom with some closing thoughts. When we contemplate the righteousness of God, we see how incredibly short we fall of His standard. And then we understand why God says that there's no one who is righteous in His sight, and we have absolutely no hope except the hope we have in the gospel through the work of Jesus Christ, in which God has promised to us that we could be right with him, not by our own righteousness, which we don't have, but rather the gift of his righteousness, really the righteousness of Jesus Christ credited to our account. That is the gospel, and that is our hope. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.